0: You're listening to Coding Blocks, episode 74. Subscribe to us and leave us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, and more using your favorite podcast app. And check us out at CodingBlocks.net where you can find show notes, examples, discussion, and more. Send your feedback,
1: questions, and rants to comments at CodingBlocks.net. Follow us on Twitter at codingblocks, or head to www.CodingBlocks.net and find all our social links there at the top of the page. With that, I'm Alan Underwood. I'm Joe Zach. And I'm Michael Outlaw. Freelancers and small business owners, I feel for you. Tax season is here, and there's a good chance that many of you are trying to dig your way out from underneath a pile of receipts and spreadsheets. Do yourself a huge favor and stop digging. Before you completely disappear under the abyss of paperwork, go and check out FreshBooks cloud accounting software. Not only is it going to save you a ton of time and stress, it might actually change the way you feel about dealing with your taxes need to send your accountant a quick summary on the amount of tax you've collected last year? How about pulling together a profit and loss summary? FreshBooks can generate these reports in seconds instead of the hours it would take you to do them manually. You can even set up FreshBooks to import expenses directly from your bank accounts, which means next time you use your debit card for that meal, tank of gas, or new computer, boom, the purchase is recorded instantly in FreshBooks and all this and freshbooks is ridiculously easy to use. It's made especially for people who don't like dealing with numbers and their taxes. Right now, Freshbooks is offering a 30-day unrestricted free trial to our listeners. To claim it, just go to freshbooks.com/coding and enter coding space blocks in the how did you hear about us section.
0: All right, so this episode we're going to be talking about drawing lines as we continue to dive into the latest series clean architecture but first
2: all right let's start off a little bit of news uh first off thanks for the reviews i really appreciate it uh from itunes we've got an awesome
0: name here unhandled except sean i love that one <laughs> yeah and on stitcher we have robert b r gomez and once again unhandled except sean Yes,
1: and R. Gomez, thank you very much for the long, heartfelt review. I know that you were a little bit worried about your English, but it, you know we'll take it, man. Very much appreciated. Okay, so now it's my turn. So I have a couple of rants <laughs> that I've got to get out of my chest. So one is completely not related to anything coding; it's just everyday thing. I drive a truck. If you're going to pull out in front of me while I'm going 65 miles an hour down a road, you better hit the gas pedal. And if you pull out in front of me in a BMW (laughs) and you do 20 miles an hour, I really want to run you over. Like, I know none of our listeners are those people, right? Like you're not gonna pull out in front of somebody and basically be stopped on the road. But please share this with everybody. Like the bigger (laughs) the vehicle you drive, the more you want to run people over who do things like that.
0: But why are you going so fast through a school zone? No. no.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Oh man, I did that the other day. Oh, did you get a ticket? No, um I got a hand shaking at though. Oh. I just well, I don't know what the worst. It was Man, I, I stopped at a red light and you know it was in it was I was actually already in the 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 school zone and I just kind of forgot about it and when the green line when I just went like normal speed until I saw the guy in the orange vest is like hey you Matt, like, you better be oh, glad it was oops. just a hand
1: shaking because a ticket in one of those things Yeah, or, or you know uh hitting a bunch of kids would have been pretty bad too. Yeah, that's never good. Yeah, man. At any rate, yeah, that's rant number one. Okay, so my blood pressure is slowly going back (laughs) down now. Um, The other thing, man, like if we're all coders, and so we all face challenges all the time, right? Like I I think I even made this analogy on Slack the other day about like you're working on a problem and it feels like you're just – pushing that problem along inch by inch, right? And you finally look up and you're like, man, I made it a mile down the road somehow. I don't I don't know how I got here because it feels like it's been a struggle every step of the way. Part of that is because when tutorials are written, they almost always feel like they are written with the most simple use case in mind. Not the most common use case, but the simplest. And that drives me absolutely crazy. Like I, this thing that I've been struggling with, I've been trying to work on Kafka and, and, and some data things. And there was this one little nuance that has probably cost me a week of nights. And like, I'm not even joking. Like it's, it's been a lot of time, man. If there is a little nuance like that, that you figured out and you wrote an article about bold it, highlight it, make it a 90 point font, make it blink. I don't care what you got to do. Call it out like that. That is a pet peeve of mine is when when there's simplistic use cases that are like, oh, this is so easy to use. But then anybody that really goes to use it, they end up frustrated like, man, do everybody a favor. If you're writing blogs or you're doing anything like that and there's something that really does jump out as not really expected, call it out like seriously call it out somehow because you will you will save hours of frustration from other people even though that you wrote that bo- that blog post and you wrote it in there if it's just sort of in the flow with everything else then then it, it, I, I don't know i feel like it's almost a disservice so it, that's that's my ask of everybody
2: Hey, you know um, that reminds me. um, Asung, um, hope I pronounced that right. Sorry. Uh, Slight edge cutter uh, recently wrote a, a great blog post about a similar problem where he's working with Passport JS. Got stuck for hours. Ended up finding out that it was just a, you know a simple uh, config change that he ended up having to make. And uh, what he did though is he went and wrote a blog post saying, "Hey, if you hit this error, do this." And so not only is he leaving a nice little kind of breadcrumb for him to find if he runs into it again. But he's also helping anyone else who end up who might end up googling and finding that same error. So that's a great way to kind of kind of
1: combat those kind of problems. Oh, that's that's a great point. A- actually, in when I went off on on the uh, or and I didn't go off when I mentioned the thing about you know you feel like you're you're just making inches of progress, but you know the thing that I that I am terrible about with this, and I, and I'm curious, you guys probably are too is you have fought your way like you've you seriously like it, it feels like you just keep hitting walls and you you finally make it a mile down the road and you forget what those walls were you know what i'm saying like wow. you forget exactly what those problems were and you didn't document it along the way because you don't want to stop because as soon as you stop you feel like progress is lost like you, you just don't want it that momentum is hard to pick back up mm-hmm. and and I don't know the right solution to that. Like I'm not that guy that can stop because if I do, then I'm just going to walk away from it. And I probably won't look at it again for another month. But if I just keep my head down and I keep going, but then the problem is at the end of it, I can't go back and say, oh yeah, I, I hit problems A through Z and here they are, you know? Yeah. Don't
2: you hate when you're like, oh man, I know I, I ran into this like five months ago. Mm-hmm. What did I do? And you like, you're searching your email. You're trying to look at your commits or anything like, what, what was it Exactly.
1: I mean, Not you're outlaw is really good about documenting things like that. But is it because you take the time to stop and make a note of it, or is it you just remember it?
0: Uh, no, it's definitely like I'm taking the notes as I go. Yeah,
1: I should, but I, I just can't do it. I mean, Joe, you asked a question today that, that triggered a memory <laughs> about, you know, there's this, there's this error coming up. What, what is it? And I was like, man, I, I vaguely remember that. And, and I got close enough to where you were able to find it, but it stuff like that. It's amazing how much time you lose just by not taking note of those little things that, that trip you up along the
0: way. So. Yeah. But I'm also really bad about, uh, definitely. I would definitely say I'm, I'm, I'm guilty about taking the lazy approach too. And just being like, ah, oh, I'll remember it for next time. <laughs> Right. And then I never did. And, right. I'm like, oh, God, and then you hit the it notes? again.
1: And then it's like two hours later. You're like, oh, it
0: was just. So that. that's why. That's why when you see the notes that I do take, you're like, oh wow, that was really good, really detailed. It's because, like, yeah, those. That's like one of the times where I did bother to take the notes as I went along. I'm like, fine, I'll, I'll document this, so I never have to look at it again. Never have to remember, you know, remember it again. I can just go back to this article. Yeah, I don't but, remember who I was talking. to. But then to. because. That was such a to-do. Yes. That's why I don't do it that often, because it's like, ah, it's such a to-do, it, man. It's a
1: time. Yeah, it's a time sink. I don't remember who I was talking with in Slack. I wish I would taken notes of that one, too. <laughs> but it's like they said, you'll find yourself doing it, and then all of a sudden, three months later, you'll be back in that spot, and then that second time, you're like, I'm documenting it this time, right? Like, the first time, you're trying to get through it. The second time, you're like, okay, lesson learned. All right, uh, I'll do was this.
0: It, I, I think there was like a, a Hanselman... Um, article that or comment or something like that that was similar to this where um, a lot of his maybe inspiration for a lot of his blog articles was someone would ask him a question and he's like, you know what, I could answer this to you or to myself or whatever, or I could just go ahead and write the blog. And then that way it's always available forever yep. for anyone to see. And, you know, then anyone else that asked the question again, they can just go look at that.
1: It's the, it's the smart approach, seriously. So, so uh,
2: I've been kind of working with a little hybrid. Like I just switched to Evernote in 2018. I've been trying to kind of um, basically keep it a uh, distributed note system, and kind of like a slash bullet journal. And what that means for me is like, you know, say like my workday starts, I'll have the three or four things that I want to get done. And then whenever I run into a little something like, say, I want to mention a ticket or I want to ride a ticket or something, what I'll do is I'll go ahead and add just a line item, like, kind of indent underneath that. So I don't have to stop what I'm working on. I can just put a little note that says, like, hey, talk to so-and-so about this. And I'll even paste, like, little things like URLs. Like, if I'm, you know, you like working on a you know a website or something and I keep refreshing the same page, just go ahead and paste the URL in there in case you come back to it tomorrow and you don't want to have to remember how to get there. Um, it's been really helpful for, like, commands. Like, sometimes I run a little, like, command, you know. Um, like p- p- PowerShell things or executable type stuff, I'll just go ahead and paste the command in there. And then it's nice, but I'll go like scroll up, like, oh yeah, what was that thing I ran two days ago? Like, psh, psh. now it's not good for long term. Like, you got to, you know, like obviously after like nine months or a year or whatever, that thing's just going to be unwieldy. But um, I go ahead and I break the files off uh, every month. So at least it's a little bit easier to find. And then at the end of the day, when I finish the ticket, whatever, I can kind of um, have my little notes and things I want to make sure to mention in those comments.
0: Yeah, I've gotten into the habit too, as far as like note taking is concerned. Of like, I I didn't, I didn't used to do this, but now I've gotten into the habit. Like, anytime I'm taking notes, I just go ahead and do it in Markdown. (laughs) I just go ahead and do it in Markdown, and then, and then, um, like I think Jay Z and I were on a call recently where, like, it just conveniently worked out. I Was like, you know what? I can just take this whole thing and just make a a wiki article out of it, and then it's already done.
1: That's beautiful because I I wrote it as we went. I am curious why, uh, why Evernote instead of OneNote.
2: Uh um just because I want to be able to do it on my phone. I mean I'm like I'm sure OneNote works on my phone too. I do have Office three sixty five, so I could there's also Google Keep. Yep. Um it just Evernote was the one that I'd heard of from uh, Jay over at Productivity and Tech. So okay. cool. that's what I went with. Um Ever OneNote, like I, I did use that a little bit before, you could paste pictures and stuff in there really nicely, but I wanted to keep things like simple, like plain text. Um and I do it in markdown, just like Alice said. Cool. Excellent. So what you got up next? Uh, I'm going to be doing a bit of public speaking, um, you, you know, crossing off uh, some things on my bucket list here. So you can catch me uh, at the next uh, Orlando.net meetup or at Orlando Code Camp coming up, uh, I think, in April. So if you're in the Central Florida region, you should uh, come over and say hi. Check out my talk, throw stuff.
0: Or if, <laughs> like me, you've already booked your hotel and flight reservations. Yes. Woo. Yes. That's awesome.
2: Yeah, come heckle me. It'd be
0: great. <laughs> I'm not sure that's what you want, Joe. I think you're doing it (laughs) wrong.
2: This would be memorable. Um, uh, Also, uh, if you want to win a copy of the book we're talking about again today, Clean Architecture, go ahead and just leave a comment on
1: this uh, episode. Uh, Be uh, cookingbox.net slash episode 74. Yeah, we Um, had some great comments also, by the way, on episode 73. Some like really good ones. Well thought out. Yeah. So, uh, if you want to get lost in some, some good talk there, uh, go check out episode 73 show notes as well. I thought there were some excellent things on there. I'm
2: terrible at replying to them,
1: but I do read them and appreciate them. Yeah. sorry, I I try my best. Um, And also uh, we mentioned it on the previous episode. If you are interested in helping the show out as well as yourself, you can head to codingblocks.net slash resources. Uh, I've been trying to like for this book, linking all the episodes to the book that we have. And also if you want to go buy it on Amazon and follow along, you can do that. But again, codingblocks.net slash resources, we're only going to be putting things up there that we truly use and recommend and, and, you know, would would buy or do by ourselves so um, definitely check that out if you're ever interested in you know furthering what you're doing
0: and that's it yep so let's get into the the meat of the show and talk about drawing lines and right away it starts off with a fantastic quote that we should rem- like burn into our memory banks forever and ever software architecture is the Art of drawing lines, man, that's so good. It's so it's so true too. Because like everything that every decision that you're going to make about how you architect some solution, you can think about it as how you're drawing lines around things. So like in the domain driven design conversation, we talked about circles and grouping things, like you know, uh, different part, different aggregates over here. You know, different uh, trying to break up your your domain model into different functions, right? that was just a way of drawing lines right we were grouping things in and like you know drawing lassos around fun- functionality in that example
1: yeah and and what they say here and is pretty simple they're there to keep one side from knowing too much about the other right and, and that's important it's not knowing about the other side it's knowing too much about it like you don't want to know how the internals of it work you just want to know what it has available to you <clears throat> Sorry, I was writing over here. <laughs> uh, so
2: I just wanted to put together, like, yeah, it seems like every couple chapters, like, they'll come out with a they uh, there'll be, like, some sort of statement in the book that's like, um, you know, software architecture is drawing lines. And so I wanted to kind of pick up some of those. So I actually went through our show notes really quickly here and uh, found the various kind of um, bold statements about architecture. So now we've got a line drawing programmer who is concerned with the intent, operation, deployment, and maintenance of systems. Nice.
1: I like it. And, and one of the things that I think was key about this whole line drawing thing that they're talking about here is this isn't just done when you start planning the software or, or before you ever start writing it. This is done throughout, right? This is, this is an evolving thing. So it's not a one, th- it's not a one and done thing. It's as we said earlier, right? As you're architecting your software, you're shaping it, which means that you're also drawing those boundaries as you go. And I really
2: like that because uh, later in the book, they actually um, come up with a – or actually later in the chapter, um, come up with a couple of tales of um, kind of calm uh, case studies um, where they talk about what happens when um, – it wasn't the point of the source, but in both cases, I think the, the architecture was separated from the operation. So in one, I think the uh, architect kind of came in midway and you know threw out a big blueprint and said, this is what we're doing. And it wasn't um, really so much caught up in the day-to-day and ended up kind of building something – Um, where the architecture was not in line with the actual business requirements. Right. And that's what this chapter is all about. It's about drawing lines so you can defer those kind of decisions and not make those kind of bad decisions too early.
0: I just thought of of something that would be like a perfect visualization for like the the software. Well, normally we talk about like the software development lifecycle, right? But if we were to think about like the software Uh, architecture life cycle you know those visualizations that you see i think it's like the life animation or something where it's like the the it's like the cellular division keeps happening right oh
2: yeah game of life cellular automata.
0: yeah i was trying to find an example of it but um like that's the perfect animation or like you know description of the architecture right is this it's okay it's going to start out big but like it's going to continuously evolve mm-hmm. you're going to c- keep drawing new lines new boundaries around uh you know components and modules and things like that and breaking things off but that's going to that's going to happen over time you're not going to try to do all of that at, at at the start and if you do you're probably going
1: to fail at it because you're going to try and work within those confines or artificially a lot of times um it,
2: Hey, uh, if you want to watch a cool video on how to program that sort of thing, then uh, there's one up on the internet. You can find it actually on our blog. Uh, we did a little bit of
1: live coding in order to uh, make that happen in a browser. Very cool. Um, and this is just a reminder from earlier. The goal of the architect is to minimize the amount of human resources needed to build a system. We talked about that. I think it might have been in the last episode in that hardware is cheap. You know, processing is relatively cheap, but what's not cheap is the people needed to build the systems. And so, you're trying to minimize the amount of overhead and cognitive load to do this stuff. Yeah, we talked
2: about this a little bit before. um, The least or last responsible moment—something that gets me in trouble with my uh, um, partner—trying to defer decisions until uh, you want to you want to hit that sweet spot where you defer them. Until uh, you know, the, the last possible moment where you're not losing anything by that deferral, um, but you also
1: uh, don't do it too early. Man, I can't wait until we talk about, about the use case that, that he talks about where he deferred the decision. We'll be getting to it in a minute. Um, but as we said, like, we're not going to go into deep, all the stories in this particular chapter. I mean, obviously you can get the book and do that. That's one of the things that you'll get when you get these books is some of the stuff that we're just not going to talk about that much. But, um, what Joe alluded to a minute ago was the story of the, the architecture of this system that was really not even, I, I think outlaw, we were talking about it earlier and the architecture sometimes is described as all the technologies and the stacks and
0: the tiers and all that, right? Oh, you're referring to uh, he makes this comment about, you often hear people refer to um, the, the UI layer and the server side, the app server and the database server as being a three tiered architecture approach. And he's like that, that's, that's not architecture. Right. That describes nothing about your architecture.
1: Right. and, When he goes into this section, one of the stories that he shares was this whole notion to where, you know, this company had an app that was like a desktop app and then they wanted to make it a web app. And so they hired a bunch of developers to come in and those developers were like, okay, here's what we're going to do, right? We're going to have this thing where to scale out the servers you know, somebody here might want to do that. Um, We're going to have all these separate tiers within it. And then we're going to have all these microservices and we're going to have all this and we're going to have all that. Right. And so they, when they built this thing, they built in a ton of overhead and just time for, I mean, think about that. Right. Mm -hmm. When, when just, when you think about just a, a typical, application that connects to a database just managing those two layers can be a bit of a pain right you have network latency you have all that stuff when you start adding in microservices those services then need to know how to talk to other services and then those need to be able to to communicate on down the way right and now you have all these deployments and everything it gets incredibly complicated right they end up only deploying this to a single machine
0: right yeah they yeah, were convinced that. that the whole time even though they had broken out the architecture the way they did they were convinced that it was the right way and it stayed like that for a decade mm-hmm. on running on one machine.
2: one machine and i remember back um, when i was doing cold like that was a really common way of thinking about things like you know we always talk about n tier app uh n tier applications we would have a database object we would have the orm which kind of you know mapped it and basically kind of duplicated but that was generally generated then there was this like middle layer so now we've got the schema defined in the database we've got a middleware like a, a data transfer object a dto and then we've got some sort of front-end framework like call it um you know at the time i was doing like flex or something um or uh some sort of uh, you know angular or whatever and that would have uh, an object that represented that dto as well and so if you wanted to add a column or add some sort of operation you are doing it in a minimum of three places and that just gets really hairy and annoying. And you think about all that kind of chatter that happens across those boundary lines, like every single request, every single change to one of those objects meant, was that, like a total of six transactions
1: uh, marshalling in and out?
2: Like that's pretty crazy.
1: But and now, let's, let's be fair. We're not saying that that's not necessary in some points and not even right. saying that that's not a good practice, but we are saying that... What you should do is look at the business use case, right? What is needed? These, these people needed to make a web app. Did it need to be able to scale to uh, a billion users, right? Like, mm-hmm. like my stuff needs to. Um, so, but it, it's, it's something to take into account and don't try and make this thing way more than what it, than what it really needs to do. So that, that's incredibly important. I remember going to meetups and be like, "So, what
2: are you working on?" And be like, "Well, I've got a, um, I've got uh, Oracle, I've got uh, Java Server Pages, I've got ColdFusion in the mix, and we've got Flex on top." I'm like, yeah, but what are you building? I'm like, well, I haven't decided yet. It's either right. going to be some sort of hotel <laughs> app or maybe arcade games. I, I don't know yet.
1: Like, okay. None of us have ever done that. Yeah. yeah, but
2: I, that was Copping That was like the default. Like you know, we thought we had like a kind of a cookie cutter pattern for doing those sort of things, and the people that I talked about and or talked to, and the people that were kind of uh, involved in the scene that I was in, like that's very much how we thought and talked about it. It's like this is the one prescribed way
0: to do things. Right. We confused the 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 tools and software as the architecture of what we were going to use or and, build.
1: And let's be fair here we're talking about good architecture in this good architecture should all it, like, I feel like it's a two way cut here. You should never let something like this get in the way of creating your minimal viable product, right? You should never let this get in the way of make it of, of making a postponed decision of trying to get to market with something on the flip side. You should also not let your because if you're familiar with Angular and C Sharp and SQL Server, then chances are that's probably going to be the stack that you would go to because you're comfortable with it. On the flip side, architecture doesn't care about that. It cares about how you group those things together. And so that really should be your focus, especially when you're trying to build something that's going to be more maintainable over time. So the term uh, cargo culting. Never heard of that. Uh, I think it, it goes back to
2: I don't know some 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 war where um, you know uh, some larger nation was kind of flying planes and landing it on islands and uh, the natives at the time kind of confused the activities of like the uh, air traffic control people out there on the runway uh, you know with the actual active landing of planes so they would kind of go out there after the plane would land. And try to replicate the same motions to summon the plane. So just that I think it's a common term and uh, sometimes see in the, in the blogosphere for uh, kind of following rules blindly without really thinking about the or not understanding the impact that you're supposed to be having with it.
0: So going along that lines though, the, of the minimal viable product, right, and getting that out there and deferring decisions, there was one story they talked about, though, that was a one of his personal stories where he said that, um, you know, they were, they were writing this piece of software called fitness fitness. And they thought that they might want to use a database and they were planning on using MySQL. That was was kind of what they already had in the back of their minds. Didn't know why they needed it. Didn't know if they were going to need it, but they thought they would need a database as we always do for every, you know, most applications we ever write. Okay. And, um, but they decided, you know what? Instead of like actually taking the time and the hassle of spinning up MySQL, getting all that schema set up or whatever, permissions, blah, 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 let's just defer that decision for now. So we will mock that out with interfaces and uh, we'll create, you know, mocks for that database. And when it gets to the point where we really need it, then we'll worry about it. Kept developing, year goes by, still no database actually in use during the development. Then it gets to the point where like, well, you know, we actually do need more data than what we can put in our mocks, so uh, how about if we, we still don't really want to spin up a database, that still sounds like a lot of work, how about we just write this stuff to disk, so we'll make a new mock that will just save some stuff, read and write to to a file on the disk. Did memory
1: first. They did memory first. Oh, it first. was memory first. Yeah, they did memory.
0: Yeah, uh, so I skipped ahead. Um, but the point is, is that they kept deferring that decision until eventually they are like, you know what? It turns out we don't ever need a real database. And then one of their customers, a the client was like, hey, I actually do want the database anyways. And so they're like, yeah, okay, fine, sure. Just, uh, you know, here's the interface you have to adhere to. And that client was able to write that a uh, database interface in a day and get them up and running. And that's all about, that's what it was all about. So like the idea is like, because the line had already been drawn in the sand about like, Hey, we're not going to introduce this dependency on this database, right? We're going to make a hard line here. And this interface is going to be how we're going to interact with whatever that storage mechanism is. We don't care what it is, but we're going to draw a line that it has to go through this interface. Then by the time that they were ready to make a decision about like, okay, fine, let's add in a database. If you really want a database, then it didn't mean it didn't make for a lot of changes throughout the code. It didn't make for any other changes in it.
2: You know, I, I think i um, reading this chapter. I felt really good about myself. Cause I thought, you know, maybe I'm such a productive programmer because there's no way I would make it more than a week in any project. Any project without a database. <laughs> so I feel like I could do a year's worth of work because obviously I'm doing everything right. I mean, I, I've got little crappy 2D roguelikes that use SQLite <laughs> databases. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so, so, check this out. I, I want to back up just a little bit because we have listeners of all ranges of experience, and I want to describe a little bit more in detail, what we're saying here with the, with the contract thing, with the interface. So when they say that they wrote their app and they just had this interface for the data access, think about something like, you know, get customers. They basically had an interface, we'll call it, you know, I get customers or something, or, you know, get customers could have been the the method or whatever for whatever that data access was. But there there had to be no implementation. It was literally just an interface. So whatever fulfilled it behind the scenes, they had a class, and we'll call it, you know, uh, mock. uh, I forget what they called it. It was something like mock. uh, Oh, man. What was it? Uh, Mock wiki page. Mock wiki page. And so literally, they were able to just plug in that concrete class now to fill in that, you know, get wiki pages call. Because it didn't matter what was there. it We had this iWiki page data access and then get wiki pages was just one of the calls in there. So however you want to fill that thing in, you could do. And so the reason they were able to keep iterating on that was because Everything that was coded was coded to that contract. The interface was our number one episode, I think, IS for Interface. We talked about in that that you're coding to a contract. The contract says you have to have a method called get wiki pages. I don't care how you give it to me, but this is what has to fill it in, right? And so they started with mock classes. Then they said, okay, well, that's not good enough. Let's go to in-memory classes. All right, fine. Let's plug that in. Okay, well, that's not cutting it anymore. Let's put it to disk. Oh, if somebody wants to do a database, well, here's all the 10 methods you need to implement in your MySQL database, you can do it. So I just wanted, like, it's easy to say interface, but we mean truly an object-oriented interface, right? That is what we're talking about.
2: You know, just the other day, I was working on a shared database with somebody and I had a JavaScript call going out and fetching data and they were changing the proc on me, right? So one day it takes two minutes that's annoying. The next day, it's just broken. I, you know, I don't know. if It's my code, their code, whatever. So finally, I'm like, you know, I'm just gonna take a sample result from here. I'm gonna kind of pop it in here, and I'm and coming out the, the line that does the fetch. Right. A better solution for that would have been to uh, insert some sort of um, indirection there, which would let me kind of configure whether I wanted to be using test data or real data, and whether that's at the server layer or the JavaScript. You know. I don't know. I think maybe if I had a, a better setup to begin with, I th- would have more options there. But it's just kind of nice to think that you're still solving these problems. It's just a matter of like how explicit and how many lines you're temporarily commenting out.
0: Right. The really cool thing, though, about th- the way he approached that that example in the story was that by creating that interface first, you're kind of creating the interface and you don't, you don't know what you need until you decide you learn that you need it. And you're like, okay, fine, I'll, I'll add this to the interface. And so then you add that to the interface and you keep going like that. So basically that interface just becomes the minimal amount of stuff that you needed, right? Like I know I'm pretty bad, I'm, I'm probably guilty about like maybe going the wrong way where like I'll create some class, but I want it to be, I want, an, I want it to adhere to an interface so I'll create the interface after I've created the class so that the class implements that interface and I can just, you know, that, my my thinking is like okay fine, everywhere else I'll just use the interface instead of the class. So I'm trying to do the right thing, but I definitely didn't start with oh I'm going to write the interface first. Right. And, and you know the
1: interesting thing is when you when you do what they did and this is kind of hard to step out of, especially for like guys like us who have been doing this whole, you know, server client architecture for years where you almost always have a database at the heart of everything. Stuck in our ways. It, you kind of <laughs> are. And and when you think like that, I mean, I would imagine you guys probably go there, too. You start thinking about, OK, what's the crud states that we need to create? Right. And so you automatically go there. You say, OK, well, I have a new table here. OK, I need to be able to update, create, delete, read. You know, and so, so your interface at that point, you're already thinking, okay, well, I need to have all those methods. And then there's going to be a get by ID and a search by. And, and so you go way further than what you may even need to. Oh,
0: right? I, I can, I can take it a step further too. Like, it might even be worse than that. Like, you've already, you already have this like toolbox of things that you know that you've done in the past. You're like, Oh, well I need one of those. Well, I've already written one of those. I know what one of those looks like. I'll just uh, reuse that thing again. And so you start cobbling together all of these pieces of a puzzle that might have a lot of functionality that you don't need. You don't know, but because you're not um, maybe like purpose building those interfaces for it, then you bring more baggage yep. along with you and possibly more dependencies. Agreed. And you make it to where you're not drawing good lines around. And so like a good example that comes to mind is if we were to write any kind of application right now, and I was like, Hey man, I need you to um, also, I, I need some good logging on that. Every one of us, you know, here we're going to think of log for net, uh, you know, maybe log for J, you know, for the Java guys, but, um, you know, you're, that that Apache project is by far and away our, our, going to be our go-to, right? We don't think about, like, maybe if we should abstract that and have our own uh, facade around some kind of logging interface that we could then plug in with whatever logging framework du jour we want to use, right? We just immediately think, oh, I'll bring in this thing. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. yeah, it doesn't think to think that, like, you're making potentially really, like, not terrible, but you're making bad decisions implicitly, meaning you don't even realize that you're making decisions till after the fact because you're so used to solving problems in the same way that that behavior just becomes implicit. You just kind of type without even really realizing what you're doing and just implementing the same kind of bad patterns that you've been doing for years.
1: Yeah, and and let's be honest. I mean, us three guys, we have a lot of years experience between the three of us programming. And we do a lot of things right but reading a story like this sort of makes an aha moment go off in your head. Right. Like the, they deferred the database decision for over a year. That's like, incredible. Like, like seriously, like when I read that, it actually made me smile. Cause I was like, wait, what? Right. And then it just made sense because typically like if, if, if I'm waiting on you to get something done, I'll mock up the data. But it's like what Joe said a minute ago. Typically, when you do that, you'll just hard code it in in place. And it's not like you're going to draw that line, right? You're not going to put that interface in the middle and say, okay, well, I'm just going to have it flip over to this mock class right now. But then when they get it done, then I'll just have it flip over the other one. No, typically, you just uncomment out your code or you delete out that code that you had there. And you recreate it. A better way is to put that interface in place and then have it to where you inject the code that you want at the time that it's being done. And by the way, it makes it way more testable, right? Right. So one thing that's kind of weird though, is um, that does kind
2: of um, just the idea of taking a year or more on a, a, like a, a project before you actually launch it, that kind of flies in the face of all the uh, kind of MVP type advice that you get now, for anything. Yeah. Um, and so it's, it's kind of weird like to think that, yeah, you can defer the database and that's really awesome while you're working on it. But at the same time, if you're living in a more agile world, you're trying to get something out, you know, first month, like, heck, you know, Uber probably launched in a year, right?
0: (laughs) Well, okay, fair point. So it was a different time at the time that that application was being uh, developed versus the way, you know, we try to get things out as soon as possible today. But so let's not get caught on the amount of time that the decision was deferred, but just the fact that the decision was deferred and that by deferring that decision for as long as possible, it didn't hamper any other technology decisions down the road and actually made it more easily to adopt whatever, you know, uh, underlying architecture they wanted to use for the database um, without it impacting the rest of the application.
1: Man, I love that. What you said, it didn't hamper it, but it actually made it easier to plug it in afterwards because they had a well-defined set of things that they know they needed to make that app that app run.
0: Right, they they had gone through the time. That, that's why I kind of was getting out with that interface, like going at it from the interface first. Like you figure out what you actually need, yep. and then after that point, you're like, oh, okay, well these are. I know everything that I need. That's it. Cool.
1: Whatever I got to do to fill in yeah. these holes that are here. Right.
0: That's you fill it. in the blanks, and we're good.
2: Yep. It's awesome. And I tell and, you, it changes stuff in the database. Stinks. Like renaming tables or
1: renaming columns is really annoying. So so check it out. That's actually, that leads perfectly into the last bullet point that we have for this story, which is by deferring that decision on the database, they didn't have to worry about stuff like that. They didn't have to worry about schemas changing. They didn't have to worry about... Um, Someone you Someone know, changing latency. the proc and it no longer working? Yeah, a proc. Yes. They didn't have to worry about usernames and passwords changing. They didn't have to worry about any of that garbage that you typically have to worry about when you have another system set up. If they wanted to change the schema in terms of what they needed in their app, they just said, okay, well this interface now requires this field, right? And they could defer those decisions about the storage behind the scenes until after further down the road. Just overall, like that story was amazing
0: to me. I loved it. I mean, if you think about it, it makes sense, right? Like, maintaining a database and a database server, that's a full-time job. It is. That's why there are people that have that job. Yep. Yep. It's
1: not not a small task. So, which lines do you
2: draw and when? We got a nice little sense here. Uh, you draw lines between things that matter and things that don't. That's I thought so that was kind of a weird way of saying, because it's not necessarily that one thing matters and one thing doesn't. Right. Doesn't. It's just that one the, the
1: details of one thing doesn't matter to the other. Right. Right. So they, they bring up that the, the GUI or the UI doesn't matter to the business rules. So wait, what does that mean? It means that the business rules impact the, the UI, but the UI should have no impact on the business rules. So if that's the case, you draw a line there. That's the boundary. That's an easy separating point. That's um, how it should be. It, that's how it should be, right? <laughs> Not typically how it's done. <laughs> um, and, and this one, I love this line right here. And and I and I liked it. We'll get into it here in a minute. The notion that the database is tied to the business rules is misguided. Um, That one, man, there have been so many arguments over the years with so many people. And I've probably flip-flopped sides on this so many times. But there are people that will be like, hey, the business rule should be in the database, right? And then you'll hear other people say, there's no way the business rules should be in the database. They should be in some sort of middle tier, a business logic layer or something.
0: He definitely makes for a strong argument in this section, whether he intended to or not. But he definitely makes a strong case for your database is just about storage. Correct. And yep. nothing else. Your business rules should be something else. And if you think about that, especially in a lot of today's architectures and applications and whatnot, where you know, the whole idea is uh cloud and the ability to to scale uh you know horizontally in order to get the performance and the you know expectations that you need for your users, right? Then that makes sense that, okay, well, yeah, if I can just throw more compute at it and all my business roles are in the compute layer, then I can achieve those kind of goals. But if I start putting, if I start mixing my storage with the business rules, then I'm setting myself up to where I'm, I'm going to be, uh, you know. You're stuck. Yeah.
1: And, and it, real quick, Joe, I know you're about to say something. To, again, backing up for those that aren't familiar with some of these terms, scaling horizontally means you scale to more computers. Scaling vertically means you're stuck within the same computer, right? So
0: Yeah, you throw more RAM at the same computer right. or you upgrade to a faster SSD in the same computer, or a bigger processor
1: or more cores right. or whatever. But eventually you you tap out on what you can do in when you're trying to vertically scale because it's you're limited by the hardware in a machine. Go ahead, Joe. I was just thinking, uh, you know, I flip-flop on the whole uh, whether the logic should be in store procedures from
2: the database or or um, or not. And I don't remember the first time we talked about it or the several times since, like, where I ended up. But um, every every time I argued for the procs, if I ever did, I don't even know. But if I did or if someone else did, they are generally arguing that the database is the core. It's the lowest layer where your data lives and your logic grows from there. So any changes that you make in those procs, happen at the lowest level. And so your business logic is kind of wrapped around this molten core of your application. But what we're saying here is, hey, no, no, no. The database is not the core. That's the problem. The database exists on the outside. It's the outermost layer, just like the GUI, which is hard for me to internalize because it still feels to me like the database is the center. Maybe it's just because I'm kind of doing it wrong and thinking about it wrong. Well, But when you start to think about the database as being outside then suddenly it makes sense to
0: not have those procs or that logic anywhere near that database. Here's another one of the thoughts, though, that I think that we kind of fall victim of or, or, you know, that we're guilty of is that sometimes we'll put these business rule decisions into the data tier because we'll say things like, well, it's much more efficient for the database to do it than it is for me to take all of those rows of data, take it into the compute layer, you know, sort it, whatever, and do whatever calculations, whatever, especially aggregate level, you know, uh, functionality that you got to do on those. So we'll, we'll start making, you know, I guess excuses for ourselves I think that's what as it is. to like why we should keep things. And so it's, it's that type of thought, right? That type of thinking to where we're like, okay, well, I can excuse this one. And then something else will come along and be like, okay, well, I mean, I excuse that first one so I can excuse the second one too. Right. And and one thing leads to another, and before you know it, you do start finding yourself putting by by mistake, by accident, you find yourself putting more of your business logic into your database here that you didn't intend to.
2: And eventually, we're going to get to, to a diagram in the book. um, that uh, that shows kind of like what a clean architecture looks like. And sure enough, the database is on that outermost layer. And when I – I accidentally read the wrong chapters today (laughs) to prepare. (laughs) But anyway, when I was reading about this, I was like, man, this seems – it just feels – I get the argument, but it just doesn't feel like what I'm used to. And so, I actually went and Googled the the onion architecture again. And sure enough, it's got the database on the outside too, but – I mean, if you would ask me in an interview, like about the onion architecture, I would have been telling you about the database right there at the center because that's how ingrained it is in my kind of muscle memory. So right.
1: what what Outlaw said, and and this is the perfect reason why it happens that way. Think about this, right? Like, if it, let's just take an e-commerce app because it's really easy for us to think about products, right? It's easy for us to think about attributes on a product. Here's a perfect example. You have, you know, this, this database that has, you know, 10,000 widgets in it, and you want to mark every one of those widgets with the color blue. Typically you'd say update, you know, products set color equal blue. And the reason you do that is because of what you said, the efficiency in, in, in people's mind, because you're dealing with that storage tier and that storage tier is central to everything else you do. That's where your mind goes. But you can't really enforce business rules like that. And the other problem with that typically is SQL queries, SQL in and of itself, is not a language that lends itself to modularity. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, we've we've seen this a lot. Like you can't you can't extend a query <laughs> and say, hey man, so we want to update all these things, but enforce the business logic here.
0: Well, it's also very difficult to do it conditionally, right. Right. Let me just use results of a store
1: procedure. Good luck. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's not made for that. It's made for operating on set based um, amounts of data. If we're talking about relational databases. So, so what outlaw said was the reason we do it that way is because, oh man, if I just want to update every product in there, it'll be real easy. Right. It'll do it in place. I could say update product, set color equal blue, done. Boom. Every, every product in the database is done. But what if when you set it to blue you also have to i don't know set some other attribute on it right unless you wrote that in the proc or unless that that crud operation that that typically is a dumb crud operation we'll call it right because it's just going to basically say update this this attribute unless that thing accounts for some business logic which may be a bad thing The other option is what we said is you now have to bring that data into your application, right? So you have Mm -hmm. 10,000 products, and this is why typically people don't do it this way, is you have to bring those 10,000 products into your application, spin up objects for them to validate them. So if we're talking about the domain-driven design, the whole point there was you have this aggregate so it can ensure the state of that object all the time, Right. So now you spun these things up. You spun up 10,000 objects in memory in your application to ensure that you can update it properly just to send it back to the database. And that feels inefficient. <clears throat> and it probably is from an operation standpoint, but from a data consistency and a data, um, uh, what do they call it? Uh,
0: not,
2: yeah, they had a nice word for it. Or keeping it all when things were like Atom. correct,
1: the
0: acid. <laughs> an atomic, atomic
1: type change, but basically making sure that thing is in the proper state, right? Yeah. You can guarantee it that way. If you're just writing ad hoc update statements, I guarantee you, you will make a problem. You'll you'll mess up at some yeah, point in is, your career.
0: This is one of those things though, where like you you can you start to make that that reasoning in your head because you're like, well, if I do it all in a, pr- a sort procedure, I could wrap it in a transaction. And then roll the transaction back all together at once inside of that same procedure. If I wanted to, which okay, yeah, I mean, yes, technically you can do that. You could, but that doesn't mean that you couldn't have a transaction in your app layer too. Which you can. So yep. you could do multiple SQL statements. You know, if that's what you know, if you're assuming you're doing SQL, uh, and then commit the transaction all mm-hmm. in your app layer. Yep. You know, it doesn't have to be in the proc. You know, I was thinking about this though, from like, there was, um, I don't remember how many episodes back it was, but we got into a conversation and I think it was around that during the, um, some of the domain driven design discussions. And we were talking about like, um, if you were to take all of the scores of, you know, test scores of students and you were to try to percentile rank them all that, um, you know, that that was a reason why, a reason why you'd want to do that in the database was because it'd be easier because of, um, you know, because you're trying to do that aggregate function across all that data, you don't want to return all that data back because you'd have millions of student records and things like that. But now like reading, having read this, you know, this section, I'm like, Oh man, that was like a horrible thing to have said. Uh, I wish we could go back and edit that out now, but we'll leave it there. (laughs) <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, cause I mean, it, it definitely goes back into the face of exactly what this is, what this is kind of describing here. Right? Like that, that was an example where it was like, okay, well, we'll use this excuse of putting that business logic into the database tier because we find it easier. It's easier. That's really right. what it boils down
1: to. Now, don't get me wrong. If you transition that to the application layer, it's going to be chattier, right? It's going to be less efficient straight up. Yeah. But can it be more consistent? Absolutely. Right? You can enforce better business rules there. And by the way, if you ever need to change uh, the, the storage of where some of that stuff lives, your application now still can work, right? Whereas, you know, swapping out that back-end stuff may be more difficult. You have a bunch of cobbled together stored procs or whatever. So I I, I really I, I wanted to hit on all that because There is a, you really have to do make a decision in your mind to say, okay, we know that we're going to take this hit, but it's worth it.
2: Mm -hmm. You could also make a very specific service, like a color updater service, but then that requires a deployment and all sorts of of stuff that is really annoying and difficult too.
1: But, but then again, though, still your service might have the application logic in it as well. Right. So, I mean, if it's part of your business or whatever, you know, Regardless, we're just saying there's a really good argument not to use your database for your business layer, right? There, there's a yeah, really my argument. specific service is definitely cheating. The in- integrity, I think, was the words uh, that we were looking integrity, for. Integrity, that is the
2: I word. Looked up you. in our show notes. Um, <laughs> so yeah, the service
1: is definitely cheating. All right, so this is where he actually gets into the lines that I thought were interesting. So. What he's got is he's got business rules point to a database interface, right? And then from there, there's database access layer that's also pointing to a database interface. Now, there's a boundary between the database interface and the database access layer, And then, so the database access is sort of sitting in between the database interface and then the actual database. So it's actually what's going to go to the database, get the stuff out, and then fulfill the contract to the database interface, right, that the business rules can use.
0: Right. It's important to say that that database access is implementing that database interface. Right.
1: Nothing should be directly Mm -hmm. reaching out to that database access layer. If done right, because basically what happens is, and I think one of you guys said it earlier, is the indirection. It gets injected in whatever's supposed to fulfill that contract would be, would be um, supplied at the time that that you're running the application.
2: And these arrows really confuse me. And there's a couple diagrams that do this, and for some reason the arrows just point in the directions that I don't expect. So what I finally, how I finally kind of justified it to myself is um, thinking about them as knows about lines. So business rules know about the database interface and the database access knows about both the database interface, which exists in that business library, we'll call it, and the database access component also knows about the database. And I'm apologizing right now because I know we don't have a great track record for... <laughs> For talking about diagrams, but I uh, hope you'll stick with us here. The idea is that, um, just like we talked about before, we're drawing lines about things that matter and the things that we don't care about. So the business rules care about that database interface. Database access cares about that database interface. The database interface doesn't care about
1: either of those. Right. Things are it's pointing totally independent in it. Right.
0: It, it's also really... I want to I want to make one point of clarification though, because the way you were kind of describing it, Alan, it was almost walking this, like, without saying it, but it seemed like you were heavily implying a dependency injection, uh, you know, kind of tool or framework. But that's not necessarily. It does. It doesn't. We're not necessarily saying that something requires dependency injection. If you were to, I think it was back in like the Clean Code um conversations, but you know, if you were to think about like the injection the quote injection could be happening at like a parameter level right Right. so if you were to pass in some parameter to a method um and and it only implemented an interface then you're kind of injecting quote injecting the real thing at runtime with whatever whichever call to it you know is passing in something that meets that interface's uh implementation right so it doesn't necessarily have to imply um an IOC framework or something. Yeah, because I was thinking about like the I was one of the examples I was thinking about was like let's say you wrote some DLL and um you know if you pass in some interface that matches uh you know whatever the name of your database interface is so I database and um you know it does, you don't care what gets passed into it what the underlying thing is that gets passed into your DLL if you're going to make some call to that interface um, that's not important to you it's just that it meets that interface need. Yep. It, we've talked briefly
1: about injection before, and there's a lot of confusion around it. We probably should do an episode on it at some point in time. Um, but yeah, what you're saying is you can inject by passing the parameter in that like some some method requires an I repository, right? Mm-hmm. You pass in the concrete version of that, that repository that you want to use. That's different than an inversion of control framework like uh, like uh, Castle Windsor or, or Ninject or something to where you can actually tell it, hey, anything that uses this I repository interface, swap in you know my database repository class. So they do similar things, but they don't have to be some sort of automatic at runtime type thing. Is what you're saying? Now, if
2: you remember way back when we first started about clean architecture, the first chapter. He kind of did one of the first chapters. um, Uncle Bob went through and uh, talked about kind of like a little bit of a history about programming. He talked about structured programming and object-oriented programming. And uh, if you remember, he actually said like the main benefit of kind of modern traditional um, OO languages is the interface because it enables these plug-in architectures and it enables dependency inversion in a way that is easier than it's ever been before. Easier and more correct than it's ever been before. And so um, it's the whole book is really built on that ever since like dependency injection, dependency inversion principles have come up every single chapter.
0: Yep. Yeah. And this one was no different. So what about IO? Right. So he he describes that um, when we talk about the input and output of a system, that most users and most developers they get confused about what the system is, right? Most most of us, when we start to talk about that applica- that next application, or the application that we're currently working on, we we start to th- think about it as like, well, it, the UI is what it is. That that's what that's the defining thing about how it should work and uh, what it should do.
2: Yeah, and uh, I'm trying to think about, like, what input and output means in this context. Like, are we talking about, like, keyboard input and output? We're talking about, like, sure. mouse, yeah. like yeah. anything. Screens. Mouse, Screens. keyboard,
0: yeah. Yeah, you the UI, the, the visual representation of it is how we often think about, like, what the system is. If I were to ask you, if we were to, like, hey, Joe, I got this great idea for a new iOS app, right? Well you know, it wouldn't be uncommon that we would just focus on discussions about like, yeah, so i got this idea. This is the UI is going to look like this. We'll click here. We'll go over there. Then these things are going to happen. Rainbows are going to fly out. You know, unicorns are going to dance across the screen, right? It'll be all focused on UI, but that's not what matters to the system. It's it's not if, you know, it's the business rules that are going to matter.
1: Yeah. The the input. So the funny thing is I always, uh, I thought about Joe's rogue game, right? No user actually has to interact with that thing, right? I mean, technically speaking, that character could be moved around in bits in a program. You know, you could have something that made it move X amount of squares and run into enemies and do stuff. You don't have to have inputs and outputs there. Like, they're irrelevant. Like, the the UI could be completely useless, because what matters is what happens when that character moves and encounters an enemy and what happens when that enemy attacks and all that kind of stuff. And that's what was really weird, as they said, the UI is basically irrelevant. Don't get me wrong. Are things not as useful without a UI? No. I mean, we're not We're not trying to go that far. But really, the overall intent of the system is what
0: happens at that business layer. Almost always, really. So here's an example of this uh, that came up in a one of our recent conversations was if you think about the UI not mattering, what if you were like, just totally rip out the UI as you know it, right? What if you, what if you could do that? So go to, go open up a browser, go to google.com and look at Google and do a search on Google. Now open it up with links and do a search there. Is it, you just swapped out the entire interface, and yet it works, right? Yep. The core business functionality day,
2: is still there. You'd have to go to Google.com in order to do a search, and then they started. Um, p- there was the whole like toolbar revolution of like mm-hmm. 2003, 2005, when they had like the Google toolbar or whatever else. And just think about the, all the different ways. If you have got an Android phone, you can like say it, you can type it, you can search it, you can you know uh, Cortana or whatever will go out and, and search for you. Um, there's so many different ways of of interacting with the same root system like they there's not a search engine
1: for each one of those right it's all using the same core system and that's what they say basically if it's programmed to an interface like if if there's some sort of contract with whatever that that business layer is or whatever's doing the work the interface doesn't matter you can plug in whatever you want you want to do android um ui
0: you want to do an ios ui Let's be careful. The user interface doesn't matter. The user interface right. doesn't matter. The interface
1: yeah. into the the inputs into that that next. This section tier gets mattered. a little weird with the yeah. use of
0: interface yeah. as as it relates to previous ones. Yeah, they're very careful to
1: call out GUI in all the places where they talk about interfaces. Um, but yeah, it's it's pretty interesting if you think about it. Like strip it away, it doesn't matter. However, you can get the data into it is what matters. Well, I don't want to say it doesn't matter. Because, uh, like, you
2: know, just like they said, like to the users, it's the most important thing. It just we want to insulate it from the rest of our system because our system doesn't care about right. the, the user interface. Right. Right. So this the UI doesn't matter to the system.
1: It could run with or without that GUI on top of it.
2: Yep.
0: Unless uh, so you're talking to a visual duct. designer, and in which case that's going to be the most <laughs> important thing. So I yeah. guess, yeah. you know. They or the customer keep things relative I mean, who, who to, to uh customer? you know uh, the
1: is not going to do it through a bash shell. come on man <laughs> i mean they could <laughs> they could uh
2: yeah uh, so uh plug-in architecture this is kind of what t- t- uh, mentioned before um the, you know what we said like this is kind of like the whole this is the shebang this is what we're talking about this is what we want this is the whole point of working with these uh you know the the big static languages and IDEs and the tools that we are, obviously that's not all programming by any stretch of means, but for the most part, I think uh, that's kind of what we're talking about. Like this book isn't geared for the person who writes five lines of PowerShell, you know, at a time, Um, It's just a different sort of thing. Um, But business rules should be separate from pieces that are considered pluggable or should be considered pluggable UI in the database. And we actually um, got into a really cool example here uh, talking about resharper and visual studio which uh, I'm very passionate about, Visual Studio and ReSharper. So um, it was kind of cool to have that uh, example. I was so
1: excited. I was like, hey, I know those guys. Right. <laughs> I use that. And, and what they said was kind of, it's kind of scary if you think about it from a perspective, which I don't think JetBrains cares that much. They got other products that are, you know, help be their bread and butter. But if, if uh, what was it? Oh God, ReSharper, if it changes... Visual Studio doesn't care. Right. It's just, it's something that's plugged into Visual Studio. If Visual Studio changes, ReSharper cares, right? Like it it could be completely irrelevant at some point in time. So it's the pluggable. It's the thing that that can be added. Yeah,
2: absolutely. And uh, it's yeah, it's scary to think that, you know, Microsoft could potentially make such a big change and, uh, you know, really mess up life for them. But I think that, you know, Microsoft has a strong incentive to not mess up their partners. And so um, I've actually been reading uh, – oh, God. Satya Nadella's. I hope I pronounced that right. uh, Hit refresh. I've been reading the book. And it talks about a lot how um, Microsoft's relationship with partners has changed and how it used to not be so great. It used to be kind of more competitive. Anyway, uh, that's kind of an interesting side note. Uh, Interesting book. should hit me up if you are reading it too.
1: Oh, that's cool. I didn't even know you had one out. Hey, I – one note on the previous thing with the business rule should be separate pieces that could be pluggable. They pointed out, and I think it's important to know just because something's pluggable doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be easy. Right. 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 So you want to strive towards making it pluggable, but that doesn't mean that you're just gonna be able to swap it out in 30 minutes. Right. Like that's be realistic.
0: Yeah. But we want to do that though, because the idea is we want some of the modules to be immune to changes in other components. Yep. So, it might not be easy, but if we can go through that ordeal, right, it'll pay itself off in dividends later. And this
2: is a kind of different kind of plugin, but I uh, keep seeing more and more things that have webhooks. You know, where you basically have some sort of thing you can paste. And so, when an action happens in your system, you know, we'll go ahead and call whatever webhooks be out at the, uh, you know, the various pieces, just like a template method. Um, and it's another example where, like, If what you do on your end, the action, the stuff that you do with the information I pass to you changes, I don't care. I just, you know, I just call your (laughs) URL uh, at the appropriate time. Now, if I decide to stop calling that webhook or change when it happens or change the data that gets passed to it, then, you know, you've got a problem.
1: Yep. One of the things that they point out here is is your business rules should not break due to a change in the UI or even schema changes in the database. And this is where things get weird for us, guys, right? <laughs> because <laughs> we're like, oh, wait a second. You change the database, you change everything. And, and if you're doing that, that's probably the wrong way to approach it, right? You should be looking at your business layer to figure out what sort of interfaces it's programmed to, and then whatever needs to happen from that point
0: should fan out. Well, this or just is don't
2: where, change the database. <laughs> don't,
0: don't change the database. right? This is where, you know, I, I'm really finding a great marriage between this book and the domain driven design. Yes. Book. And especially there was a plural site course that I think we talked about at the time. Uh, I want to say it was Julie Lerman and Scott Steve Smith? Smith. Steve Smith. Steve Smith. Smith yep. Um, they they gave that and they, they, um they gave a great, presentation and explanation of using the domain driven design approach from scratch. But the the key to that though, is that if, for anyone who doesn't know Julie Lerman, I mean, she is w- like extremely knowledgeable about entity framework, highly involved in the development of it. Uh, lots of Pluralsight courses about Entity framework. Um, so the challenge there was like to have a, To take the domain-driven design approach, and we talked about in the last episode about not letting the entity framework um, components leak out into the rest of the application, right? And so it wasn't, hey, don't use entity framework, but there was definitely like, hey, well, there should be like a, a line in the sand as to like who uses the entity framework components and who doesn't, right? Right. And so even going through here with like not letting the schema changes, break your application, right? If elsewhere in your application, if you're not using, um, if you're, if you're using domain models that aren't necessarily, uh, you know, that closely tied to any framework, then it's not going to, it's not, yes, the schema changed, but it's not going to break the logic of those, those components necessarily. You might need to go back and, and do some refactoring, but, uh, you know, things will still compile, for example, like, you know, I mean, that that's what this is all about, right? He's like trying to draw, like, where do you find, how do you draw the lines between the things that matter and the things that don't? And as far as your domain is concerned, as far as your business logic is concerned, it doesn't care about what the underlying storage technology is. So it doesn't need to know, Hey, uh, this is an entity framework object and you can still do all these queries, right? That you might not realize were happening,
1: right?
2: And don't forget that uh, Steve Smith is still doing the weekly Dev Tips podcast. So, great way to get like little short five minute tips every week. But uh, he's uh, full of great advice.
1: We've referenced him tons of times. Yeah, he, he's done some excellent, excellent courses on Plural Site.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: another thing that we have here is by arranging our modules into the plugin architecture. We basically create firewalls across the components, right? Like you create these safe entry and exit points.
2: Yeah, I think that's a great term for it. That, And uh, I always think about, uh, you remember back to like science days, they talked about like cell walls and cell membranes, brains that will only let like certain protein combinations or whatever, like through the walls. Uh, um, same idea as a firewall, I suppose, but I just like the idea of like, um, kind of, uh, you know, using that in conjunction with like the inter- interface separation principle or segregation principle in order to kind of cleanly define your lines. And it doesn't even matter what you pass because th- this is all that's getting through. And we do uh, refer to uh, drawing those boundaries uh, along the line where there's an axis of change. And I know this term came up uh, in an earlier chapter, but I don't remember exactly what it was. Is it was in italics? Anyone remember?
0: No, I couldn't remember either. I was thinking, it, at first I was thinking of it um, similar to the uh, main sequence when we had the conversation about the, the zone of pain, yeah. and the zone of uselessness. Um, but I don't think that was right, though. But yeah, so we want to draw the lines where there is the access of change. So basically, the things that are going to change and at different rates and for different reasons, we want boundaries between those things.
2: Yeah, I've actually found people on Stack Overflow asking what the axis of changes.
1: (laughs) And nobody knows. (laughs) Nobody knows. Hey, who put this next one in here? Um, Oh, hey, uh, that was me.
2: Uh, So remember from episode uh, 68, uh, I already brought this up. Um, The primary benefit of OO is dependency injection. So we can build these plugin architectures. So that's kind of the whole point. If you're doing something in C or Java and you're not leveraging um, interfaces and these kind of um, cool dependent, de- de- dependency inversion <laughs> principles, then why are you using Java or C? Cool. And so
1: you I mean, have an answer to that. <laughs> so C is awesome, uh, and it's got great syntax and power. True that. So just wrapping this one up real quick, I mean, we just talked about drawing the lines and partitioning the system, um, making sure that you're pointing in the right direction towards those dependencies. And uh, this is an application of the dependency inversion principle and the stable abstractions principle. And so with that, it's time for us to beg for reviews again and for you guys to take the time to do so. If you haven't already, again, we love reading them. We super appreciate the time that you guys take to do it. It's near and dear to our hearts, and it helps other people see that, you know, there's something that they might want to see over here or listen to or whatever. So, you know, please do, if you haven't already, head to codingblocks.net slash review and take the time to leave us a few words up there and, you know, put a smile on our face
0: And thank you. And with that, it's time for my favorite portion of the show. Survey says. All right. So last episode, we asked the totally awesome and legit question. Is it okay for a site to open links in a new tab or window for you? And your choices are... Joe has opinions. <laughs> your your incorrect choices are... First, absolutely, no one's got time for holding extra keys. Or, yeah, yeah, for holding extra keys. Uh, second, yes, but only for links to external sites. Next, yes, but the site better warn me first. And your correct answer... Nope, no, no, nope, never, nuh-uh. That's what control or command click is for. All right, so uh, I think, Alan, you went first. So let's go, Joe. Uh, Would you like to tell me the correct answer and maybe guess a percentage on it?
2: With the correct answer or what I think the vote (laughs) said? The vote. Uh, (laughs) Let's go with that first. Clearly, Uh, they would have
0: picked the correct one, right?
2: Um, No, I think the vote is going to say yes for links to external sites because I think we've got a lot of web dev listeners. And that was like the stock advice for many years. Mm -hmm. It's not the correct answer, though. (laughs) What's your percentage? Nope. No, never. Oh, my percentage? Sorry. Yeah, your percentage. I jumped ahead. Uh, I'm going to say 36%.
0: Oh God! Thirty-six. Okay.
1: okay, I'm going with the same answer, and I'm going to go with one percent by one percent by, by prices right. Price rules. Is right rules. Yeah, because go. I I also read many a web dev book back in the day, and that was the de facto way to do things.
0: Yeah, man, this isn't the '90s anymore, man. That's it doesn't.
1: It doesn't matter, man. We're, we're all stuck. We're old. Ah, <laughs> oh, God, I hate that. But I, you I see, honestly, I. No, no, nope, never uh I, I like that one. <laughs> this whole thing about warm me first, there's nobody on this planet that said yes to that. I, I can't believe that. That irks me okay. anytime I l- see l- it. Let me
0: go ahead and get to the answers and then and then we will discuss. Man. So sadly, I don't know what our audience is thinking. <laughs> what are you guys thinking? Forty-six percent of the vote. Yes, but only for links to external sites. Nice. So our audience is saying (laughs) that if there is a link on, like, say, coding blocks, that they want it to automatically open up a new tab or a new window. If they're on Reddit and they click on a new link, they automatically want it to open up a new tab or link. If they're on Facebook or Twitter or whatever it is, they want it to automatically open up a new. That, to me, is ridiculous. I hate that. By the way,
1: I would venture to say for things like e-commerce sites and all that, that is still the norm because they don't want you to navigate away from where they want you to buy something. I'd venture to say that that is actually still the case. I'm trying yeah, to think of an example of what, what marketing like. manager, Right. No marketing manager is ever going to say, hey, navigate from the
2: site. Exactly. They want you to like, you know, go to your site, you know, well, first of all, they don't even want you to go to the other site, but if you do go to the site, eventually when you close that tab... We want to show you that product that you're still looking at, right?
1: Right. They, they want those hooks in you. If it wasn't against web rules, they'd still iframe those.
0: I, <laughs> I'm trying to think. <laughs> I'm trying to think of an example though, like of an e-commerce site that would open up a site to something external.
1: Facebook shares all kinds of things, man. Like yeah, Facebook's not an e-commerce site. No, 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 no. I mean, like if you're on a site that's like, hey, pin this or Facebook like it or something, they're not going to go to an external site. They're going to
2: right. Yeah. I'm just trying to look on Amazon to even find a link to an external site.
0: Yeah. That's what that Amazon was what I was trying to think of. Like if you were to go. To what, their- what about, what about a site? Like
1: let's say car parts and they have a link to the manufacturer or something like that. Like, I mean, I'm making things up right now, but potentially something like that, right They're, they're still not going to want them to leave that site. And, and let's, let's even go a step further. Even if you're not an e-commerce site and you're a blog, and you want somebody to click something for an affiliate link or something. Typically, are you going to want them to go away from your site and potentially click on a link on somebody else's side? Or you know what I'm saying? Like it's the it's, whole owning y-
0: the. Yeah. I just view it as like, don't make the decision for me. I, if I'm a big boy, if I want to if I want to open <laughs> up a new tab, I, I know how to, I know how to do that. I can control click myself or right click and say, open up, you know, I, I don't need you to do it for me. So, yeah, like I, I really hate that. And by the way, there were like ten percent of the vote was warn me first. Oh
1: man, I, that I don't like extra clicks, man. It drives me crazy.
0: Yeah, which which that one was, I yeah I I didn't really. I think we put that one in as an afterthought. I didn't expect it, but I was definitely thinking of cases like I. You see that one more often with like financial institutions or something like yeah, that. Yeah, you're where about it's like, to
1: leave this site.
0: Hey, this this link that you clicked on is not to us, so we don't want to be held liable. Right. Right. So I get it in those cases. I hate it, but um, that one I, I guess I get because they're trying to like not be held responsible for anything in so, that
1: regard. So to wrap this one up, how far in second place was the no-nope ever? Because it had to have been second.
0: It was it was thirty four percent those okay. those were
1: definitely the two strongest, so almost half and then and then a third okay that that's a vast majority of it. that kind of makes sense.
0: but what brought this up? So like you know, if everyone who's listening is like, why would you that was a stupid question? So there was some post. I don't remember what post it was, but um Alan had gone in and added in a portion of it that had a bunch of uh, affiliate links, and he. Uh, you know, set them all to open up in a new target. Target blanks, man. Yeah. And I was like, wait, no, that's awful. Why would we <laughs> ever do that? Never, ever do. So I went behind him. And I'm like, delete, 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 delete. <laughs> because I'm like, no, we're all grown adults. We can open up our own tabs. Uh, I was like, please, please never mobile? do that again. <laughs> what about mobile?
1: Yeah. Actually, does mobile change things? No, mobile works the same. I, mm, yeah. You know what? I actually appreciate it when it opens in a new tab for me on mobile because I hate long holding on something to pop up the me- – you know what I'm saying? Like you don't have a control button to click. Right. You have to long press force something. force touch. You have to long press it or force touch it and then wait for the menu to come up and then taps. I hate that. I'd rather just click it and it open up a new tab.
2: Mm. Yeah, I, I don't know, man. Uh, I, I, I could see mobile – like sometimes I'm researching, you know, I'm like – You know, why is my dog's poo green or something, you know, on my phone while I'm walking around. Now, you know, I'll click a link, click a link, click a link because I want to keep researching. But it is nice sometimes to be able to not lose that original page. And it's kind
0: of starting point for the research. Imagine Uh, if... Grass, by the way. (laughs) Eating grass. Yes. Imagine if next time you went to Google, if every time you clicked on something in Google, it was just like, oh, well, I'll open that up in a new window for you. Because I want you to keep your search results nearby. Well, they kind of do it anyways. You click any link from Google
1: and it's going through a redirect that then takes you to the page anyway. So they, they've already captured you. So, but yeah,
0: I, I get your well, point. Well, but yeah, but I mean, it's not going into not a new, a new tab, tab, tab or
1: window. Yeah. So, all right. So, so people agreed with my
0: target blank. I'm just saying. Yeah, gosh. <laughs> Audience, awesome. You let me down. You you, weren't, you were not supposed to say no, <laughs> nope, never. You were supposed to have mine in Jay-Z's back, but no, oh, you didn't. That's awesome.
2: <laughs> yeah, never knew. Never knew. Um, so today's survey, what's the oldest code that you actively work with? The oldest code that you actively work with? Not something in the closet that's, you know, around that you saw once, but actively, like, you yeah. know regular day-to-day. day-to-day right
0: your regular day-to-day stuff
2: and uh, the options we're gonna have for you are less than one year green as can be lucky <laughs> uh, one to three years and it, was there life before angular I, I threw that in as a little joke just kind of think like you know three years ago angular was still around but uh not much more than that yeah three to ten years back now this is back when javascript only ran in the browser no JS wasn't out, you know, Rhino or some of the other implementations were just kind of, you know, experiments at the time. 10 to 15 years old. Now, this is starting to get interesting. This is pre-JQuery. This is uh, getting to be like pre-iPhone, right? This is like back when you maybe had a regular cell phone and maybe not. We had to get our own elements by ID back then. You had the Motorola Razor. Yes, sir. <laughs> I love that phone. And you were styling. And then uh, the last option here, we're going to have more than 15 years old, which is really impressive because that's predating Stack Overflow.
0: So you know that code has some bad patterns in it.
2: I'm kind of thinking I messed up my numbers because I think Stack Overflow is only a little bit more than 10 years old. So anyway,
0: if you're doing
2: code that's 15 years old, it was definitely pre-Stack Overflow. This Mm. one will be interesting. Yeah, I really want to know. I don't know what to expect here.
0: I guess, do you think it would depend on the size of the company? Do you think definitely. there's going to be any kind of correlation there?
1: Yeah. yeah, definitely. Yeah.
0: What? Which way do you think the correlation is going to go?
1: Bigger the company, older the code.
0: Yep. If you think like it's
2: going to... Based on past surveys, I'm going to say that this survey is going to skew to younger code bases. So I'm going to say three to 10 years. The heavy on the three.
0: <laughs> well, you're thinking like when you say big, you're thinking like, a, Fortune like 100. a Microsoft, yeah. you know, and you're working on Office or yeah. even more than fifty.
1: Yeah, oh, more 50, 50 points. Yeah. yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. We will see. A quick question for all you trailblazing freelancers: If you could reclaim up to 192 hours a year of your precious time, would you? Our friends at FreshBooks, who make ridiculously easy-to-use cloud accounting software for freelancers, are the architects behind this question, and for good reason. By simplifying tasks like invoicing, tracking expenses, and getting paid online, FreshBooks has drastically reduced the time it takes for over 5 million people to deal with their paperwork. If that's not enough incentive, the FreshBooks platform has been rebuilt from the ground up. They've taken simplicity and speed to an entirely new level and added powerful new features. And if you're doing the math, 192 hours works out to two working days per month. When tax time does roll around, you'll find tidy summaries of your expense reports, your invoice details, your sales tax summaries, and a lot more. If you're a freelancer listening to this and not yet using FreshBooks, now would be the time to try it. FreshBooks is offering a 30-day unrestricted free trial to our listeners to claim it just go to freshbooks.com coding and enter the code coding space blocks
1: in the how did you hear about us section all right so now it's time to talk about boundary crossing we never do this so okay. this basically occurs when a function reaches out from one component across that boundary line that we drew into another component and
2: this is not an exception, right? We're talking about like the normal use case where, you know, the UI is calling the server, or servers calling the database, or something like that, right?
1: Yeah, this is what we want. Yeah, I mean, th- this is this is the intended way things should work. And, and the trick here is the the key part is managing the source code dependencies. And, but and why? Yeah, that's that's what they say. Why the source code? And basically, what they're saying is when depending on what your dependencies look like, when you change one piece of source code, then it might trickle all the way up the line or down the line or however you wanna look at it, right? And so that's why you want these boundaries to be well-defined so that you don't have this whole chain of of changes that have to happen.
0: Yeah, and going back to the, the firewall comment, there was a great line where it was talking about like, you know, the building and maintaining of these firewalls to protect against these changes is the whole purpose and the whole intent of the boundaries, right? So if we think about um, you know, managing those boundaries the same way we would manage the code and the compilation and to try to prevent one change from having to force a recompile on another, then that's a way of thinking about these lines.
2: Yep. But what about the dreaded monolith? And uh, they bring this up because the point there is that just because we may end up with one, say, executable or one jar, one whatever, we still have those boundaries. They're just not as visible.
0: Well, yeah, he says that this is the simplest of the architectural boundaries, right? So, yes, you still have the boundaries, but these are your source code boundaries, you know, at the component levels.
1: Yeah, because they even say, right? Within the the monolith itself, just because it's all one application doesn't mean there aren't those lines. So even your statically linked libraries, right? Those are your boundary lines because those are the things that can be uh, swapped in, whether it's a a JAR or DLL or whatever. So, you know, and, and again, they say that the interfaces are important. It's the same concepts. It's just it's all bundled together. Do you think it's harder to maintain good practice when it's bundled together like this
0: because it requires more discipline? I personally, I don't think so. I I do. You do really? I I absolutely think so. Because when you, when you, my thinking is that if, if you have everything grouped together, like let's say you're in a, in a visual studio, kind of C sharp world, right? You got one solution file, you know, some large number of projects, right? If, if you if you're not careful about g- putting good names on what those projects are so that mm-hmm. the names alone can communicate what its intent and boundary is and instead you fall victim of creating like this is my helpers project and this is my code library project and my utility project then those become dumping grounds of well because you didn't really know what to call it you also don't know what should and shouldn't be in there and so it It becomes a very big mess.
1: okay, yeah, I agree then. I, I take back my previous statement. <laughs>
2: so do you think there are any programmers uh, you know on a say like a you know medium to large size team or even a small team that would argue that architecture isn't doesn't matter?
0: Architecture doesn't matter,
2: <laughs> doesn't matter. It's a waste of time to talk about or
0: think about. Wait, would would would? is there a developer that would say that architecture doesn't matter? Yes. I on think a,
1: on I, a small, medium, large team. Yes. I would say that, I mean, I've even had the conversation with people where they're like, I don't understand the point of an interface, right? And, and so that almost, especially in the context of this book, but in a lot of conversations we've had, that almost right there says you don't care about it, right? Like you just want to tightly couple all the way down because you know that this is going to use this, it's going to use this, and so why not just make it easy?
0: Well, I don't know if that's fair. I mean, just because somebody doesn't understand its use and its purpose and why they should use it doesn't necessarily mean that they don't care. They just don't know. Like ignorance is bliss, right? fair, Fair, fair. Yeah, but I was just kind of thinking like, I
2: don't think there's that many people that would explicitly say, I don't care about software architecture, just let me do my job. But I do feel like there are a lot of people that say, I don't care about learning interfaces. I do think dependency inversion is a waste of time. I do think it's okay to have these kind of like, you know, we'll call them like uh, sloppy lines between things. Or we'll say that the lines don't matter, encapsulation don't matter. Like I feel those are common sentiments. So it's kind of weird to me to say like, you know, these two kind of mean the same thing. So if you say, I don't care about clean lines, I don't care about interfaces, I don't care about dependency inversion, you're kind of saying by our definition of the word, you don't care about architecture. And I think maybe that maybe there are people out there who don't realize kind of what they're advocating against because they're not
1: thinking of those things as architecture. And then I'm wondering what they think architecture is. But you know what? So in fairness to what Mike said, I agree. Ignorance is, is almost the excuse there, the answer there. I'm fine with that. But there are people, Let's let's be completely clear. There are people that don't care about the architecture at all. They have a need to make something happen. And they'll just do it however they need to do it. And they don't care what the code looks like. They don't care if it's efficient. They just know that they got the job done and they're moving on.
0: Right. Yeah, that that ticket's done. And if you decide that you want to refactor it, move it somewhere else, then you have at it, but that's all on you. Right. So so
1: I think there is. I think there are plenty of people out there that don't care about architecture. And and to a certain degree, I'm sort of okay with that, only because it's the same, it's the same type thing as you need people that are willing to just do jobs, right? That that don't overthink or underthink something. They just kind of, they're task runners, right? Like if you have somebody that works in an office that stacks shelves and that's what you need them to do, right? And so maybe that's fine. Um, I think that can be detrimental if you have too many of those people that don't care about it, but there are some people that just work really well as task runners. Hey, I need
0: this thing knocked out. Go do it, right? But it seems like those are the kind of people though that you need to give It's That's like you need to give them more guidance. You need to give them more examples of like, hey, this is the pattern that we're following. So, as long as their status quo adheres to the to good patterns that you've already put in place, then yes, I understand where you're coming from right. by saying like, hey, you just need some task runners and that's fine. But when you don't have – if you don't have good patterns in place or you're trying to migrate to better patterns, then that type of person can get in your way.
1: Yeah, true. I, I, but I would also argue too that people that are all trying to go the other direction and make everything way, 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 way better – you can get a lot of collision there as well. So, I mean, it's it's <clears throat> answering your question. Yes, I think there are people that really don't care. They really just they could give a hoot about it, right? Like, just hey, what do you need done? I'll do
2: it. And do you think that having good architecture can kind of um, supplant those people, or maybe, maybe make it easier for them to do the right things because doing the right, you know, doing the getting their day job done is easy because things are have clean lines and there's a clear pattern for them to follow. And so it's almost harder for them to deviate from it. Absolutely. I yeah, think it is totally,
0: but I, I still, it's easier for them to follow the status quo, but they could still fall victim of, Hey, I'm going to create this utility class. I'm going to put it into this, into the wrong place. Uh, just because out of laziness, I I don't feel like, putting it that for me to get to that other package to put it in that one it would mean that I'd also have to like republish the package and, you know, make a new version publicly available or whatever, whether that be like a, an NPM module or a nuget package or whatever, you know, and, and I don't feel like doing that. I, I, I need this functionality right here. So I'm going to put it in here. So that still happens, but yeah, that's where code reviews come in hand, right? I will say, though, this is also where tooling can
1: make a big difference in how effective you can make teams like that. Because honestly, like, like let's, let's take NuGet for an example. NuGet can be a freaking pain in the butt, right? If you want to package up a project to push it back up, especially if you don't know all the nuances, it can be a royal pain in the butt, right? Because you push it up, oh, there's an error. Okay, now I need to change something else. I need the debug symbols. I need all that. Oh, man, I'm going to have to push up another one, so I'm going to have to go back to the command line and do all that it makes it a pain, right? So trying to do things right can be problematic, which by the way, I have a real gripe with uh, a particular thing that Microsoft's done. So in general, I love VSTS. Just absolutely love it, right? Like if you've never, if you've worked in GitHub a lot and you've never actually messed in visual studio team services online, like I love it. It, It's, it's worth checking out if you want to put up a, a repo or whatever. Here's where I have a real frustration. So there is a package, a plugin that you can buy from Microsoft for auto packaging nugets for you. So you set up a pa- you set up a project or whatever, and you can tell it, "Hey, I want this project to be auto nugatized," so that you can, and you can even do pre release versions. It's got all kinds of settings. You got to pay for it. Like to me, that's that's dirty. D- only from the perspective that like they have all these tools up there that make things better, but then that one's really useful and it's not just, you have to pay 50 bucks for it. Like it's paid on a, on a number of project things that use it. Like, come on, man, get that thing. Uh, and, and it's got a horrible rating on the, on the visual studio marketplace <coughs> for that reason. People are like, are you serious? Like, Really? Why, why are you charging per? And they're like, well, we looked at all the places. So something it, that's like two command
0: line. Yeah. Like seriously,
1: it, it's kind of ridiculous. Don't get me wrong. I don't want to downplay the, the fact that somebody built that thing and put it out there. But Microsoft, you're, you know, you've created this awesome world where people can, can program and, and put these things. Come on, man. Ease, ease the way. Don't, don't get in the way of progress, especially for something like that. That's kind of ridiculous. But at any rate, going back to the whole thing, I digress on that. I do think that, yes, if somebody enforces a good architecture, it can enable those people, just like you said. But I also think that tooling can play a huge role in enabling that to be easier, right? So Yeah, I think static
2: analysis
0: will call you on your crap. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah that's the kind of tooling I was about to ask about. Are we talking about static analysis or do you have something else in mind like build pipeline or something both both
1: static analysis one right like it calls you to the floor right where a pull request glosses over that because you can't get the context sometimes static analysis call it out but but even just that that build thing that i was talking about i mean the
0: static analysis may call it out it might not necessarily like you know in that case that i the example that i made up where it's like okay i'm gonna create this utility class and i'm too lazy to put it where it really belongs so i'm gonna like pollute you know, my logging framework with a, I don't know, uh, an email client or something just because I'm lazy, then it may not call it out
1: in in the zone of uselessness or whatever. But so I think it's a combination of things, but like the the whole thing that you're talking about, you have this big mono solution that has everything in it and people just dump it. If you have tooling set up that makes it easy for those various projects to be bundled up and just included in your project all of a sudden people will start adhering to it because it's, they don't have to go out of their way to make something work the way that
0: they expect it to. You know? I mean, we, we've talked about it time and time again, and it, as comical as it is, it is so true though, that if you're going to have these monolithic uh, applications and repositories that the naming becomes so important to be able to express what that intent is. Right. And taking back like you know, one of the core uh, things that you know was at least a takeaway from for me from clean code. Um, you know, like making sure to name things, exp- you know, expressive. Uh, give give everything an expressive name so that like right away you knew immediately what that function was going to do. You know what that class is supposed to be for. Uh, those types of things, right? And it really like if you think about it at the at the source code level for like your projects and how you're gonna break up those modules, right? If you have to give those things meaningful names. Otherwise you risk that they're going to get polluted. Yep.
1: And, and I mean, I'll even, I'll, I'll share one that I had kind of done initially with good intents. Like I had created a patterns uh, project. Right. And, and I was talking to outlaw and a couple other coworkers at one point and I was like, Man, this is going to become a dumping ground, right? Like, it, it, and I think even maybe you were the one that suggested, hey, can we rename this thing? And I was yeah. like, you know what? This should be more targeted, right? So, yeah,
0: it made me twitch a little bit every time I looked at it. Yeah, because the
1: thing is, is it only had a pattern in it at the time. And then, you know, we got to talking about, hey, let's clean up some of this stuff and let's make it more expressive and more targeted. Mm-hmm. And I was like, you know what? This is a good place to start. Let me, let me take this thing out, make it exactly what it is, name it that way. So it's no longer this generic place where people can just
0: add whatever they want. So, so just to kind of wrap up this section here, um, you know, one of the benefits of the monolithic uh, application or system is that the communications within that application are going to be fast and inexpensive, right? You're still in the same process space, same mem- memory, space. So, it's just function calls within the same space.
2: Yep. All right. So on to deployment components. Um, the simplest representation of an architectural boundary is deployed application, so DLL, jar, gem, etc. So that's usually what we're meaning whenever we say uh, component um, when we're talking about the clean architecture. And the components delivered as a binaries are example of deployment level decoupling. We talked about this uh, last episode a little bit. And this is in contrast to the source control are basically just trying to kind of keep those lines uh, clean in the actual code. And it's similar to a monolith. And the only real difference is that um, rather than a single executable, it's a, a bunch of dynamic libraries. Do uh, you remember back in the day, like it was very common for, for just about any application to come with like a bin directory that had all those DLLs in there. I don't, I don't know why they didn't bundle up them into one single file.
1: Like I'm sure we had the technology to make things into a single file. Yeah, I don't know either, unless they had plans for being able to hot swap them at some point. I I don't know. Yeah, I don't know either. I mean, like I definitely uh, am used to deploying things as multiple libraries,
2: so I can hot swap them or because I'm, you know, just doing weird stuff or being lazy. But, uh, I mean, single executable is nice, like if a user is
1: actually going to see it and makes things
2: like uninstall easier, I suppose.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Um, it, it's funny, the next section they brought in were threads and this one felt kind of odd only because it, it, sort of doesn't mix in with the rest of the things that they talk about here. And, and the yeah. reason, yeah, I mean, the reason is, is really it's, they don't create boundaries. It's just running code in scheduled and organized ways. Right.
2: That, yeah, yeah. I thought it was interesting to talk about threads. I mean, mainly because they mentioned how you you know a thread can run across kind of multiple or, or multiple DLLs or multiple components can be kind of executed on the same thread. So I thought it was kind of interesting, like to think about it. But it, yeah, it did not seem like kind of an interesting departure. Um, same with the next one, local processes, um, which is just basically stronger boundary.
0: Yeah, I mean, with going back to the thread one, though. For example, um, I wonder. So there's a, a Udacity course. Um, that a friend and I were going through. And one of the things that it goes over was the um, boss worker uh, pattern for threading, right? And, you know, at first glance, with this section uh, on threads, it, it's right, you're, you're right. It was really short. And I think he was just trying to make a th- the point that, like, hey, threads are not necessarily boundaries. Don't think of them as boundaries. But it did kind of make me a question, like, well, maybe he was coming at that from the point of view of, like, you know, part of the boss worker pattern, when you start talking about variants of that pattern gets into, um, the specialized threads, right? Because if you, if you think about, um, so just a little background, let's st- take a step back about what the boss worker pattern is, is that, um, let's say that you have one main thread that takes in all incoming requests and then he will then spin that off to one of a collection of worker threads right and um so in that kind of application you're all about trying to keep the boss as efficient as possible but if the boss has to like hand it off to the worker thread then there's a period of time where the boss has to wait for the worker to acknowledge it to accept it and then take receipt of yep i got it cool we're good from here and then the boss can move on right so then there's like well how do you make that boss worker pattern more efficient Um, you know, maybe the boss just dumps it into a queue and then the workers can all read from the queue. And at that point you're treating all of those workers, those worker threads as the same, every one of them does the same is capable of doing the same things. There's no specialization, there's no localization, things like that. And, you know, so the next variant of that would be like, okay, well, what if you do have specialized threads, right? So because, um, there's like a, uh, I forget There's there's some kind of computing law where it's like, if you've done something, if you just recently did something, you're more likely to repeat it. And looping is a prime example of that. Right. I, I forget, there's probably a better name for it, but I don't remember it. But you know, the idea being that like, if you, if you have these specialized threads, right, then you can have, um, uh, better quality of service type capabilities built into it. Um, you know, and and that localization that you know certain threads know how to do some things very well, right? So maybe I don't know, but maybe that's where he wanted to go ahead and make this distinction. Like, if that's you're thinking of like the specialized threads kind of scenario, like let's just go ahead and nip that idea in the bud. That 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 is not an architectural boundary. That is not a line. Stop. That makes sense.
2: so like the first part was kind of like talking about where to put boundaries and the second part, the top part we're talking about now is just kind of like the different kind of boundaries you can have. So um, we're talking about, you know, monoliths that, you know, don't really have much. We've got um, deploying things in static or dynamic linking. Now we're talking about threads and then we go on to local processes and then finally services. So just kind of, I, you know, it, it just seems so, so weird to hop to threads to me because it's just such a low level concept compared to everything else we've been talking about. Right. So I almost expected like a, a paragraph or something to kind of like ease me into it rather than just going from uh, static linking to uh, threads. Yeah. Which are completely not related.
0: Well, I mean, I guess in the monolithic, it was not maybe called out, but you know, I guess you could assume after the fact that he was referring to like a single threaded application in that particular scenario. I think so
1: because he was talking about like everything ran within the same uh physical processor, whether it was multi-core or whatever and then in the same memory space and all that kind of stuff so so yeah I, I think that's kind of what the goal was and and with threads they're more they're more processes that run independently but it doesn't there's no boundaries right it's it could be running any portion of an application it doesn't really doesn't matter um, yeah. So next step up from that is basically local processes, uh, which
2: I mentioned before as a like a, basically a stronger boundary. So they typically communicate with sockets. So we're talking about uh, processes on the same machine here. They run in separate memory spaces. So these are things that typically can be broken off to, to services or something. um It's they're kind of like a large component, but it's just like kind of one step up from the thread.
0: I you know reading that part made me think of the. Um, the 12 factor app again. Mm -hmm. Uh, I know we've, we've referenced that um, section before. So if you haven't already heard that series, we did go over the 12 factor app, but um, that was one of the the ideas here was that like, you know, you could just have your process spit out its output to standard out and something else wanted to grab it. Then it could just take the input from standard in, do whatever it needed, spit it back out to standard out, things like that.
1: And this one was, this is where things get interesting because this is where we start talking about performance of these things. So they talk about this local process. What well, You have to be a little bit more careful here because when you're working in a local process, the thing that is like your liaison is going to and out of the OS layer. Mm-hmm. And so the marshalling takes time, right? Taking your data packets and, and moving it into the OS and then moving it over into something else. Like that translation and that that conversion over there, that takes time. It eats up CPU cycles. And so this is where we start talking about some of the performance impacts.
0: Yeah, in the in the whole reason why you're trying to break these things up into different processes, though, is you're trying to have these lower level processes be plugins to the higher level processes.
2: Yep. Yeah. So it's a stronger boundary, but it's got a performance um, performance hit, and that takes us to the next level, which is services, which are the strongest boundary. Uh, they don't have to run in the same process. They don't have. To, they, they can run in the same machine, but. Usually not. So these are things that can run across like a network or even
1: across the internet. And so
2: strongest boundary, but also the least performant.
1: And this is, this goes to what, what we brought up earlier with the, you know, running your data all in SQL server or your database versus bringing it into your application layer, right? Like when you have this service, that's when you are now making this, this very strong mental decision to say, You know what? I don't care about the performance as much as I care about my data integrity at this point or or my domain level integrity. And and this is where you start seeing these things, right? Like you have a services calling out, especially now with cloud services and stuff, right? Like there can be some decent latency between what you're trying to do and what you're trying to get and when you actually get that.
2: And just like kind we said earlier, like if you've got like a good, strong architecture that's making use of, say, for example, services, it can be harder to cheat those services because you kind of have to do things in the appropriate layer or you have to go out of your way. Now, if you're relying on threads for all of your boundaries, like you've got one, say, big executable, then it's really easy to cheat those layers because they're essentially virtual, right? So you can tie your UI logic into your database calls or, or do whatever you want to. Because there isn't that uh, that enforcement there that's happening, so I do think that, like like we said earlier, services can help encourage doing things the right way. Although, uh, as I mean, you can screw up anything,
1: I can <laughs> true, anyway. true, we all can master
0: of it.
2: Cool, yeah. So uh, I think that's about it for this
1: section. Uh, most systems, other than monoliths, uh, use many boundary strategies. Yep. And so for the resources we like, obviously we like clean architecture. Uh, Again, if you would like a chance to get your own copy of this thing, make sure you leave a comment on this slash episode 74. And now it's time for my favorite part of the show and it's the tip of the week.
0: (laughs) So um, if you enjoy using Visual Studio Code, you can do a control shift C to open up a command prompt that will take you to your project's root directory. So a nice little handy feature there. Thought you might enjoy. Like it.
1: Use it a lot when I'm doing node programming. Um, mine's kind of interesting and I did this by accident. So, You know, it's easy to forget that when you're in Visual Studio or not Visual Studio, I'm sorry, SQL Server Management Studio, it's really Visual Studio, right? Like it's it's a full blown IDE. And I somehow or another opened up the output window in SQL Server Management Studio the other day, not even realizing it. And there's some glorious things that happen behind the scenes. So if you do that, you'll see all the output of what SQL or what Management Studio is sending to SQL Server when you're doing things in the IDE. So if you expand the tables list, it'll show you the query that it ran to get that list. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, if you decide to filter... Something like the 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 stored proc list or whatever, it'll show you all the code that it used to go get those those uh, meta objects from the database. So it's kind of a cool way if you want to see some of the hidden tricks in SQL Server of of finding these things out. Like I, I wouldn't be surprised if uh, who's who's that guy that has like the uh, SQL Server Tips blog. Uh, oh, oh, Dave, any, uh, Dave Pinal? Yeah. Yes right? Like I would not be surprised at all. If he sniffed a lot of these things, like one of the, one of the tips that I do, or one of the tricks that I do a lot is I'll select star from sys objects where object definition, like, and then I'll put whatever I want in there and I can search the entire database for procs, functions, whatever that have something. You can see all that kind of stuff. If you have the output window open when you're doing
0: things in that left nav. So hmm. yeah, pretty cool tip. Hey, I do want to cl- clarify real quick. Uh, that in if you're on mac for that visual studio code command shift c would also work. And cool. and just in case for those that are that are like wait a minute, there's an easier way cuz you can also do a control tick which will bring up an integrated terminal inside of visual studio code uh, already there. Oh,
1: so the other one launches it outside. Yes. Okay. Yeah, so okay. I want to
0: make that clarification. Control-Shift-C or Command-Shift-C bring up a, a separate command prompt, you know, that's not tied to Visual Studio Code. Control-Tick will bring up um, the the one integrated into code. But I've actually had problems where, like, especially on uh, Windows, where that one is, it's hit or miss as to whether or not it actually opens it up for me or not. And I'm mm. not sure if that's because of some other extension that I have installed uh, in code and maybe they get confused as to which one's supposed to respond to that. I don't know yet. I haven't figured that out. Cool.
2: Yeah. Uh, and for my tip, um, I uh, have to throw a big thanks out to uh at Kritner from Slack. Um, he's the dankest of the dank and he turned me on to this Chrome plugin called OctoTree, which is a, a Chrome plugin um, that works with GitHub that displays a nice folder view of the source code of the repository you're looking at if it's any po- uh, public repository, it just works. It shows up great, like a nice little um, pane on the left-hand side. And if you want to use it for private repos too, same thing. You just have to give it a token, which you can get from that repository. So it's really cool, and it makes some um, browsing source code like so much easier than the kind of normal user interface. It looks just like a you know kind of folder that you would have an IDE, a folder structure. Very nice. So two thumbs up. Yep. Yeah, and... Uh, the- uh, that's uh, that's it, the show summary So this episode was all about talking about um, Drawing those boundaries or firewalls Or cell membranes And uh, the kind of anatomy of the, the types of Boundaries that we can draw
0: And with that Subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher and more Using your favorite podcast app Be sure to leave us a review by Heading to www.codingblocks.net Slash review While you're up there Check out our
1: show notes, our examples Discussions and more and send your feedback, questions,
2: and rants to the Slack channel at codingblocks.slack.com and uh, follow us on Twitter at codingblocks or head over to uh, codingblocks.net and you'll find all our social links at the top of the page.